You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Certainly when it comes to magic tricks and certainly when it comes to being scammed, uh, a healthy dose of skepticism is, is very important. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me as always is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, we're going to welcome Adam West. He is a physicist at the University of California, Los Angeles and he has also worked as a professional close-up magician. Hmm. Yeah, it's a fun interview. And we're back, Joe. My story this week is a story of international deceit and intrigue. (laughs) It is uh, good enough to be a Hollywood story. In fact, it is right out of Hollywood. Is it? It comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter. It was written by Scott Johnson. Hmm. And the title of the article is Hunting the Con Queen of Hollywood. Who's the crazy evil genius behind a global racket? Huh. Now, this is kind of fascinating. We have a woman impersonating some of the most powerful women in Hollywood. Uh, people like Kathleen Kennedy. She's the head of Lucasfilm. Okay. Amy Pascal. She used to be co-chair at Sony Pictures. Sherry Lansing. She was the former CEO of Paramount. Right. And, and a whole bunch of other women as well. So these high-powered women. Now, imagine that you are a freelance photographer and you're working in Hollywood, trying to make your way, working your way up. Right. You're young, but you have experience, and you get an email from Amy Pascal, as we said earlier, former co-chair of Sony Pictures, uh-huh. or at least you think it's from her. I've hit the big time. Well, and this email says, I've seen your work. I love your work. I want to work together. I'm working on some projects. Can we connect on the phone? How would you reply to that? Yes, absolutely. We can connect on the phone. Right. And so this person who, for the purposes of the article, didn't want his name used because he's actually fearing for his safety. Really? Yeah. So they speak on the phone and uh, this woman claiming to be Amy Pascal is very flattering to him. She's saying she knows his work. She talks about the people who he's worked with. She seems to know lots of personal things about the people he's worked with, you know, little, uh, oh, you know, that person. Person's nitpicky about this. And so clearly she's done her homework. Right. She has a lot of background information. Right. And she says uh, together they're going to uh, work and they're going to put together some storyboards for a pitch for a big Hollywood project. And all that needs to happen is he needs to meet her out in Jakarta. Mm-hmm. She sends over a contract. Uh, everything seems on the up and up. She'll arrange for hotels and things. He'll pay in advance for his airfare and he'll front the costs for things like drivers and translators and, you know, expenses on the trip and she'll reimburse him for all of that kind of stuff. And none of that is out of the ordinary for a professional photographer. These, he, so he has to go to Indonesia. That's right. And meet her there and take photos for this project that she claims that is going to happen. So he does. Six months later and $65,000 later, it turns out that this was a scam. Huh. The woman who he'd spoken to, he didn't actually ever meet her, but he spoke to her several times a day for many weeks on end. It wasn't actually Pascal, but it was an imposter who was doing an impersonation of her who basically took the photographer for a ride. She would call him and say, I need you to meet this person. I need you to give him this amount of money for the expenses for this, that and the other thing. There was a money man in Indonesia 
who would uh, meet him, you know, someone who would drive up on a moped to collect the funds and, and drive away. And over the course of time, this imposter was able to string this guy along for, for $65,000. $65,000. Huh. And he's not the only one. There, this story outlines uh, several other scams that this woman is pulling. And it seems as though she's working with a team and really using some social engineering techniques here. They do their homework. They know all about their victims' personal lives. They can be bossy. They can be authoritative. Evidently, this woman is quite good at impersonations, you know, right. doing uh, different types of accents, does her homework on the people she's impersonating. I wonder if she is an actor. Well, it seems likely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's also very flirtatious. Uh-huh. She tries to be very flattering and romantically suggestive to the people that she's scamming along. So mm. it uses a lot of different a buttons. Of, yeah, a lot of different tactics here. That's right. They still have not caught anyone related to this. The FBI has been notified. They're working on it. They say that dozens of people have been scammed over the past couple of years with this scamming group. And it's really kind of fascinating. Quite bold. Indeed. I was wondering where's the payoff here? Because if I talk someone and they go into a different country, then they're paying the airline to get there and the hotel to stay there. But where does right. the payoff go? And then you say that this guy is passing money on to Obviously, the people that are her hookups up there, part right. of her organization, that are they're taking the money, and that's where the profit is, right there. Yep, passing on cash. Yep. But again, you know, we talk about when you read this story, the red flags start going off in your mind, right, and and mine as well. But you can imagine if you're in the midst of it and you have someone stringing you along. The red flags in my mind don't actually start going off until she asks me to give cash to some guy in a moped. Right. You know, if I was in this position, I could easily see myself buying a plane ticket and going to Jakarta mm-hmm. and then getting into it. And then when she says, now, okay, now I need you to give money to a guy on a moped or, you know, somebody else is going to come up for the expenses for this. That's where the first red flag in this comes from for me. Right. It's sort of that sunk cost thing, right? Because right, if you've already, policy, if right. you've already paid for a plane ticket, you're already doing work over there. In your mind, you're so far along in this process, right? Right. That you can see that I, I suspect that makes it easier for you to be strung along with the other parts of the scam. I agree. And I think this is a brilliant scam. She is targeting people who have the resources to get over there. I mean, she's targeting people who are well-known in their their field, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate. I hope the FBI catches this woman. If you go to check out this story, again, it's in The Hollywood Reporter. They actually have some audio recordings of her. Really? Uh, So they have her voice. Yeah. Awesome. Joe, what do you have for us this week? So I don't have a story this week, Dave, but I do want to float an idea. All right. And it's an idea for the greater good, Dave. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. I've said before that hacking has a very strong economic component. Okay. Right. That when you're hacking for money, when you're doing something for money, the cost is important. Right. It's my conjecture that one of the major contributing factors to the increase in social engineering that we're seeing is that the technology is getting better and therefore the people are becoming the easier and cheaper targets. What if there is a way to change that? All right. What if we started an effort or some kind of project? where people who feel up to this task can join together and start wasting the time of these scammers. Go on. I think that if we can waste enough of their time, that it might be possible to change the value proposition of, of scamming people. Okay. Because most of these are number game, right? I'm going to call 100 people and 99% of them are going to hang up on me. Right. Right when I start. But what if 5% of them start wasting my time? Let's look at a hypothetical before. Let's say that 99% of the people hang up, 1% of the people I actually talk to, and actually they become a prospect that I can then start scamming. Right. 
But what if I took that 100 people and said, five of those people are going to actually start wasting my time to the tune of at least 15 minutes, maybe even hours, depending mm-hmm. on how much time the, these people have available. Mm-hmm. So if, it, if I'm a scammer and I'm making phone calls and I'm looking for that one person that's going to say yes, I have to go through 100 people to find the one person that says yes. Right. Right. So going through those 100 people generally takes me very little time. It's very quick. I start my scam, they go, nope, and they hang up. And that's actually beneficial to me as a scammer for me to have that event happen because I know, well, that wasn't somebody who could fall for it. Right. But if I started getting five or 10 people who start saying, oh, yeah, and they start making me spend time chasing a lead that I'm not going to get, Mm -hmm. they have just greatly changed how much time I have to spend to get to that one person that says yes. Right. Sure. So what do you propose? So I'm just proposing that here's a hypothetical idea. I don't know what the organization would look like. I don't know how it would operate. I don't even know if it needs to be an organization. Just maybe just something that people just start doing as a hobby. But I'd like to have a way to publicize this. Mm. I guess maybe I could hear from ideas from listeners. (laughs) (laughs) They are out there. They are out there. (laughs) I see the download numbers. They are listening. How do we start an organization where we start wasting scammers' times? And that's the goal of the organization. That When you get one of those phone calls from a neighbor number, Mm -hmm. right, do you answer it? Normally, I don't answer it. What if I answered it and started just wasting somebody's time Mm -hmm. on the other end of the phone? What if you could forward it to... A place where people were standing by to, to do nothing but waste other people's time. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Call comes in, you forward it to, you know, 1 800 waste me, right? Right. <laughs> so here's what we need we need a pool of volunteers that are willing, they're just standing by to answer the phones, almost like the Jerry Lewis telethon, right? Yeah, for volunteers the Volunteers are standing by. Yeah. That's a great idea because now what happens is that greatly changes the probability that somebody gets their time wasted. Well, let, let, now, me, let me take it even to the next level. All right. What if we could solve this using some, wait for it, artificial intelligence? Ooh. <laughs> what if we get those smart people <laughs> from Google on the phone? Right. You know, they're the ones who have these systems. They're trying to make appointments at uh, the hairdressers. Right. Right. What yeah. if you could just forward something to them? And it automatically knows how to respond. And all it does is waste the time. Just of- string them along. You know, you, no matter what you say, it says, well, I'm really interested in that. Please tell me more. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, oh, hold on. Let me go get my credit card. I'll be right back. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I think this is a solvable problem. I- and if everyone had knew what this number was, you made a common number. When these scams came in, you could just forward the call to that and say, oh, hold on one second. I really want to talk to you. And then you forward it. Right. And then the call picks up and it says, okay, I'm back. Now, what were you saying? And away we go. Right. Million dollar idea, Joe. Yes, I think it is a million dollar <laughs> idea. The only problem is uh, it doesn't have any profit model. It doesn't have a business model. <laughs> so I don't know that it's a million dollar idea, but I think it's a great idea. I think it would be a great public good. I hope the folks at Google are listening to this. But to have a national uh, resource for this, uh, boy, that would be something. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right, Joe, it's time for our catch of the day. We got a story this week from friend of the show, Johannes Ulrich. He is from the Sands Institute, and he's a host of the ISC Internet Stormcast podcast. He's also a regular guest over on the CyberWire, one of our partners. He sent me a note that said, I got a story that may be of interest to your new social engineering podcast. I just received one of these extortion emails that claims they have a video of me visiting porn websites. To make the threat more plausible, they include a username and password of mine that leaked in one of the large password list dumps. So the username password is real, 
it's old, right? Mm -hmm. So he sent a screenshot. So I'm going to read the email they sent him now. I do know password one two three is your password. You don't know me, and you are most likely wondering why you are getting this email, right? Well, actually, set up a malware on the adult videos pornographic material website, and there's more. You visited this site to have fun. You know what I mean. <laughs> While you were watching videos, your browser initiated functioning as RDP remote desktop that has a keylogger which provided me access to your display and also cam. After that, my software program collected your complete contacts from your messenger, social networks, as well as email. What exactly did I do? I made a double screen video. First part displays the video you were watching. You have nice tastes, LMAO. And second part displays the recording of your cam. What should you do? Well, in my opinion, twenty nine hundred dollars is a fair price tag for our little secret. You will make the payment through Bitcoin. If you do not know this, search how to buy Bitcoin in Google. That it includes a Bitcoin address there, and it says note. You now have one day in order to make the payment. I have a unique pixel within this email, and at this moment, I know that you have read this message. If I do not get the bitcoins, I will definitely send out your video to all of your contacts, including members of your family, coworkers, and so on. Nonetheless, if I do get paid, I'll destroy the video immediately. If you want evidence, reply with yes, and I will certainly send your video to your ten friends. This is the non-negotiable offer, and so don't waste my time and yours by replying to this email. Joe, what do you think? I reply yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrifying. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's a lot going on here, and as we say, these are numbers games, right? Exactly. They're they're sending it out. I think what's interesting is that Johannes said they've done some work on the or done some research on the Bitcoin address and people are making payments to this thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. So so but let, let's unpack it here. The first thing they start with is your password. So they've connected your password with your email address right. from one of the big password leaks. Right. So the first thing you see is a password that you have used in the past. Yes. So that is disarming. These people are not fooling around. They have a password and it's my password. Yep. And then they say... Hey, if have you been watching adult videos? So again, here's the numbers game. What percentage of people are they going to send? If you're someone who never watches any adult videos, well, you're just going to throw this away and you're going to say, ha, you know, go pound sand. Yep. But if you happen to be someone who enjoys an adult video from time to time, you may keep on reading. Yes. You, they may have got you. <laughs> they may have your attention. And yep. so at that point, I guess it's a risk reward kind of thing. If you're someone who uh, has the means with which to pay the $2,900. And of course, the, the thing is, this could be the starting volley from these bad guys. If they get sure. you, once you pay that, they could come back to you for more. Let's assume that everything they say is true. Okay. Right? Let's. It's like the David Letterman situation. You remember when somebody tried to blackmail him? Yeah. David Letterman handled that exactly the way it needed to be handled. Right. He came out with everything and he said, this woman tried to blackmail me and law enforcement got involved and they prosecuted the woman right. who was trying to blackmail. Him. That's really the only possible alternative for how to handle these kind of things, because even if he does have a video like the one he describes here, I'm not going to repeat what he says, but yeah. even if he does have that video, you sending him twenty nine hundred dollars in Bitcoin does not guarantee that he deletes it. Right. In fact, what it might be is a signal to him, oh, this guy has at least $2,900. Let me go ahead and tell him, nah, I've decided that wasn't enough. You're going to need to give me more. Right. That will probably be the next step. 
if you respond to this email by sending $2,900 to that Bitcoin address. Well, and let's be perfectly clear here. The overwhelming odds are that there's no video. Right. Yeah. This is just someone aligning your password and your email address and pressing all of these buttons, the potential for embarrassment. Correct. And again, running the numbers and hoping enough people get scared enough that they'll send the payment. All right. Well, again, thanks to Johannes uh, Ulrich for sending this in to us. Uh, It's a good one. And that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Adam West. And we are back. Joe, I recently spoke with Adam West. He is a physicist at the University of California, Los Angeles. He has a postdoc in atomic physics. Mm-hmm. He's a smart guy. Yep. He's also a professional close-up magician. So here's my conversation with Adam West. So a close-up magician does magic, which is for small groups of people and happens kind of right in front of your face. So, you know, very often a close-up magician will perform tricks using small objects like cards or coins or pen and paper uh, and they would do it to maybe three or four people and the people involved in the magic and people watching the magic will actually see it right in front of them and very often will actually take part in the magic so they might hold something or choose something and i think that makes it a lot more effective than stage magic where there is a real barrier between the audience and the performer Yeah, I remember uh, talking to a friend who'd recently seen a close-up magic show while she was on vacation, and she came back and and we were talking about it, and she said, there's just no way that the magician could have done this. I've thought about every possible way that they could have done this, and and there's just no way that it it could happen. And I I looked at her, and I sort of smiled, and I said, well, can we agree at the outset that it wasn't actually magic? And she sort of paused for a second and went, you're right, you're right, you're right. It wasn't actually magic. <laughs> right, and I, I think that's a kind of an interesting point because, you know, in, in our heart of hearts, we all know that it's a trick and there has to be a, a logical explanation. And, you know, if we kind of sit soberly for a long enough time, we, we realize that. But it's, it's really the suspension of disbelief which characterizes magic in some way. Um, a lot of professional magicians, you know, they espouse the goal of creating this moment of astonishment, this a real moment where you you let go of your your preconceived notions about what is what is possible and uh, achieving that effect on a person is quite often the best way to present magic can you take us through some of the common techniques? You know, we, we talk about social engineering here and people using these sorts of things uh, for bad purposes. And, and of course, you use them to delight people and entertain them. What are some of the common techniques that magicians use that sort of parallel to social engineering techniques? One of them is is social cueing. And this is something which works very well on adults and uh, very poorly on children. Hmm. Uh, And as adults, we have these preconceived notions about what is um, socially acceptable and socially expected. As an example of this, if I was to have a conversation with you uh, and be looking at you in the eyes, it's kind of natural for you for a period of time to kind of meet my gaze and look back at me. Uh, and this is a you know exceptionally simple but also exceptionally effective technique for misdirecting people. If there is a, a mechanical move that I have to do during a magic trick, I will often try and meet the gaze of someone so that they're not looking in the places I don't want them to look. Hmm. Another example of this is also taking someone's focus away by talking to them. So, uh, of course, when you're having a conversation with someone, it is is polite in normal circumstances to continue the conversation. uh, And an exceptionally effective technique to misdirect people is to talk to them. Um, So very often, magicians will, for example, ask someone a question. 
And at the moment where they engage in that question and, and formulate an answer, your, your attention is, is elsewhere. It's on the question. You know, it might be a very simple question like, are you left-handed or right-handed? But for that brief moment when you ask the question, uh, their attention is just you know, temporarily uh, moved elsewhere. Uh, and very often the question will be completely unimportant. It's you know it doesn't doesn't matter whether you're left-handed or right-handed, but it's just an opportunity for me to relax your attention slightly. So, what would your advice be to people who are trying to better protect themselves against these sort of social engineering attacks? Knowing what you do with the experience you have, do you have any tips for people to protect themselves? I think. One thing which a magician can use to their advantage to uh, make something deceptive is kind of framing, is, is context. And I think that's an important point to consider for magicians when, when they perform, which is, do I want to frame this as, as something which is, for example, uh, I'm going to fool you and there's nothing you can do about it. That kind of, you know, immediately sets up a, a very kind of combative kind of um, scenario and one where people are less likely to be conducive to, you know, whatever you want them to do, want them to be most direct or to have their attention in a particular place. Uh, in the same way for scams, you know, the way that they're framed, the context is, is extremely important. You know, the kind of archetypal example of a, an email scam is, you know, somebody coming to, to you for, for your help. Um, you know, I've, I've just inherited this money and I'm, I'm going to be taxed on it. So I, I, I need to give it to someone so that uh, the money can be used well. And that kind of framing, that kind of context um, puts you in a frame of mind where um, you are more, conducive um, to help this person and more conducive to be scammed, of course. So you work professionally as a physicist, and I suppose being a magician has shifted to becoming more of a hobby for you today. I'm curious, when you were at work and you're with your friends and your colleagues who are other physicists, how are they as an audience? Are they harder to fool than uh, average people? I think so, definitely. So in my experience, people, uh, scientists and, and physicists, uh, people I kind of work with in every day, are, are very difficult to fool when it comes to magic. And I think there are a, a couple of reasons for that. The first of those is that physicists really have a, a strongly held worldview. They have a strongly held set of core beliefs. So, for example, if I was to uh, levitate a lady on stage, for example, everyone knows that, you know, that is impossible. I can't actually levitate someone. But for a physicist, this is something, you know, with their understanding of the world and with their understanding of uh, physical law, they hold a lot more strongly. And I think it also makes it more difficult to fool them because they know about more kinds of things. Like somebody might explain it away saying, oh, it's magnets or it's, it's some invisible world. But the physicists might know, okay, no, it isn't magnets because I know that a magnet can't be that strong in, in any reasonable scenario. And as such, they're less likely to be kind of duped in that way. And I think that's a really important point, which is, as I said previously, in, in our heart of hearts, we all know that levitation is not possible. But for a physicist, for whatever reason, it seems more difficult to get them to suspend disbelief because of the fact that they think about the world in a way which is so often circumscribed by their understanding of physics. And I, I think there is a second reason for why physicists are, are difficult to fool, and that is because of the way they're kind of trained to interact. When I'm explaining something to a fellow physicist, for example, the way that they understand the concept is sometimes quite different to how other people might. And it's usually by way of trying to find a flaw in my reasoning. Mm. So they may not inherently distrust what I'm saying, but the way that they 
go about uh, enhancing their own understanding is to try and pick flaws, to promote an argument, basically. And this is, you know, not necessarily meant to be uh, argumentative per se, but is a tool for dialogue and a tool for understanding. And I think that transfers well into them not being fooled very well. And they're kind of geared towards looking at a scenario and as a default, trying to understand it and trying to pick holes in why it is the way it is. Yeah, as a social group, I suppose skepticism is a virtue. Exactly, exactly. And now, I mean, everything is, is to an extent. I mean, you don't want to be skeptical of everything, but right. certainly when it comes to magic tricks and certainly when it comes to being scammed, a healthy dose of skepticism is, is very important. And I, I found it difficult to fool physicists. And, um, you know, there are some techniques which can help you do that. One of them I've already mentioned, which is kind of context. You know, if I present a magic trick to a physicist as a magic trick, then, you know, they know they're kind of immediately in the mode of, okay, this is a puzzle. How do I solve it? Mm. But if I present it as, oh, hey, this is this really neat thing. Like, I learned about this. Isn't it weird that this happens? Uh, and they're like, oh, uh, you're going to show me something which is genuine. And that makes them more susceptible to being fooled by it. Because the kind of extreme example of this is, is a sucker trick. So there are lots of tricks that I have uh, which are exceptionally effective for physicists because they don't know when the trick is. So I might present something initially which looks very very simple for example i say to you okay touch one of these cards and, and look at it and remember what it is and then I, I find out what the card is and that's all mildly impressive but then their attention is relaxed and the real conclusion is that i've actually turned all of their cards into blank cards for example and those kinds of tricks are the ones that are very effective against this, this kind of person all right so that was adam west interesting guy huh yeah you know i never understood why people don't like magic tricks yeah. especially close-up magic tricks and he's, he touches on this some people just don't like it you know you say i got a card trick and they're like nope yeah and i never understood that i definitely fall into the group of people that is i want to figure this out me too I like the, the social cueing he talks about. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to look at you in the eyes, and that's going to make you look at me in the eyes. And while you're looking me in the eyes, I'm changing the, the orientation of the cards yeah. or moving a coin somewhere. That's pretty cool. And fascinating that he said that doesn't work as well on children. that Because they haven't picked up the social cues. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who used to do, he doesn't do this anymore, but he used to do child parties, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he would show me the tricks he was doing for it. He had a clown outfit and everything. And the tricks he was showing me were remarkably simple tricks. And, you know, he said, you can't get kids to do things that you can get adults to do. They have to be the the tricks that are that have the gimmicks that are actually, if you look at something he, he had, one of the things that he had was a coloring book where he'd flip through the coloring book and there was no colors in the book. And then he'd say, well, take your colors off to your shirts and throw them at me, you know, and the kids would, you know, like pantomime grabbing the colors off their shirts. And they flip through the color book the same way, but he'd do it from the bottom corner and there would be colors in, in the coloring book. I see. Yeah. So, but it, that kind of thing works with kids and amazes them. But if an adult saw that, you'd be like, well, you flipped it from two different corners. Right, you know, right. Maybe a little bit more observant. Interesting how fooling physicists is different than fooling mere mortals like you and me. Yes, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> he says, look at this interesting thing I found. And they're like, ooh, what did you find? You know, So he found a way to get into the mind of a physicist to make them more receptive to a trick, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. He knows the patterns. He knows the way they think. That's right. I like one of the things he said that I take away from this is the reason these things work is because of something you don't think about. Hmm. That is endemic in into all of these scams that we're talking about in this podcast. It's working because you're not thinking about something. 
Mm-hmm. There's something you're missing, and you don't even know that you're missing it, but you're missing it. And it might be through misdirection. It, it might, might be through, be through exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. that's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Adam West, uh, we really appreciate him joining us. Rumor has it that he can be found at the snooker tables in the green room billiards parlor on San Fernando Road in Los Angeles when he's not in his lab. So uh, if you catch him there at a happy hour, remember... There's nothing up his sleeve. <laughs> Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about them at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.